Well, good morning. Some of you guys know my name, but my name is Mondo Scott, I'm one of the pastors here. And we are continuing our series in the book of James. We are uh, about halfway through, we're at the halfway mark. And we get to this point in the text where James begins to address something that he has alluded to in the previous weeks, which is this, that real faith that is rooted in the gospel produces action. It's this living, it's this active entity. It's this living and active faith. A little recap of kind of where we've been. James is the half-brother of Jesus. He's writing a group of early Jewish Christians, some of the first to come to faith in the region of Israel, mainly in the region of uh, Judah or Judea. And these people have been scattered. Verse one starts with to the nations, the 12 tribes that have been scattered amongst the other nations. So there's some displacement here because of the persecution they were receiving from and under the, the, the reign of King Herod Agrippa. So these followers of Jesus have fled their families. They fled their homes, their towns, and their jobs, which is a big deal in the first century. It's not like today where we get sick of a town and um, the housing market's good and we want to relocate to somewhere better or somewhere we've always wanted to be. That's not really how it worked in the first century. The town you grew up in is usually the town you died in. It's the town you raised your family in. It's the town you worked in. And that was that way for generations. Um, but that's not the case anymore. There's, there's been a, a, a harsh response towards the gospel that persecution has shoved these people, displaced these people, and they've had to flee and seek refuge in other nations, in foreign lands. Um, so James is writing this group of people, and he's doing two things throughout the letter. He's encouraging them, which is good, and he's correcting them, which is good. And just some of the things we've explored up to this point, he starts by telling them, embrace the hardship. Consider it all joy. Be patient. Persevere this trial because it's going to mature you. Don't doubt God's goodness in these frustrating circumstances and trials. Don't be tempted to think the grass is greener on the other side. Be faithful. Don't be enticed by what's shiny and glittery, glittery in, in the world, the power and riches of other people, because that stuff fades like the flowers of the fields. Be a doer of the word because God's word endures forever. And then last week we talked about honoring one another equally, meaning that we reject the partiality or the favoritism or the cultural hierarchies that are in place. We don't bring those into the church, which means we care for widows, we care for orphans, we care for the poor, we care for the needy. We obey what Steve talked about last week, that royal law that James writes about, which is love your neighbor as yourself. We are merciful because mercy triumphs over judgment. And now we get to this point in the text where I believe is, which I believe is the whole premise. It's the whole thesis of James's letters, which is weird because it's right smack in the middle, which is totally weird for us because we like to start with our agenda, start with our thesis. But James places it right in the middle, which means it affirms everything that he's talked about up to this point. And then it's going to assert everything James wants to say throughout the rest of his letter. These are things that he wants to confront. These are things that he's alluded to. 
He wants to address a problem which is already arising in the earliest church with the earliest Christians and a problem, if we're honest, that's with us today. And he starts in James chapter 2. You can open your Bible, starting in verse 14. It says this. What good is it, brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things they needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So James begins with these rhetorical questions that are rooted in the reality, in the truth, that real faith produces action. It produces activity. It produces fruit. James is not affirming that we are saved by our works or by what we do. Because James knows, and you'll see this on the screen, that God is opposed to earning. He rejects the notion of you trying to earn his favor, earn his salvation, earn approval, earn all that stuff. But he is not opposed to effort. A pastor up north puts it this way, that vertically, we are saved by faith alone. You cannot earn it. But that said, horizontally, faith is now authenticated by how we, you, live. And James illustrates this. Verse 15, he says, Say a poorly dressed man or woman, hungry, needy, interrupts your life. Typically that's the case. They're interrupting something going on. Maybe they come to your home and you respond. Verse 16, he says, Go in peace. I hope you find what you need. Be warm and well fed. But you do nothing for his physical needs right then and there. And James has an issue with that. Not just because it's wrong. Not just because it sounds bad on paper. Because it's hypocritical in nature. Because it's hypocritical specifically for the people reading the letter. You have to remember that these people were strangers in lands not their own seeking refuge. Meaning that at one point in their journey, as they fled everything they knew... As they left, they were displaced and they had nothing and they were relying on the, the resources and the mercy of others. They left everything they've ever known because of religious persecution. They were without daily resources. There are no targets. There are no liquor stores. I don't know why that would come in handy, but maybe. <laughs> I grew up where we always went to the liquor store because it was the closest, sorry. Um, there's no 7-Elevens. There's no convenience stores. There's no grocery stores. No Trader Joe's. Right? There's no running water systems. You relied on the mercy of others, which means you relied on their wells. You relied on when you saw water. You relied on catching food or getting food from someone else. And that's what's going on. They're weak. They're weary. They're dirty. They're hungry. They're cold. And you do nothing, James is saying, for their physical needs. And it makes no sense. Verse 17b, he ends by saying this type of faith, this type of belief, by itself, without actions, it's dead. It is dead. Verse 18, he continues, he says, but some of you are going to try and outsource this stuff. He says, someone will say, well, I have faith or you have faith and I have works. James says, show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. 
So James addresses what he might assume happened, and, and that's this, that we will deflect, or that the, 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 the readers that he is writing to will deflect. They'll try and outsource faith and works. They'll say, hey, well, we're all one, right? Some people do stuff. Some people have faith. You know, it's just kind of how it is. You know, he, he, he's the guy that's like all about doing that stuff. And I'm the guy that's like at the prayer services. And, and isn't that, doesn't that work? And James is saying, no, we can't outsource that type of response. It doesn't fit the equation. And then James in verse 19 says something really interesting. Um, I'll read it. He says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Well, even the demons believe that and shudder. Now, typically when I hear this verse referenced in a conversation, 99% of the time, it is changed. It's a subtle change. I actually, on accident, defaulted when reading it to the change that I hear it. And it's this. Typically when we hear this statement in verse 19, you believe that God is one, it gets reinterpreted as you believe in God. You believe in God. Well, hey, Whatever, even the demons believe in God and shudder. And typically, we're talking to someone who's maybe spiritual, you know, believes in like higher power, believes in, you know, something out there. They're spiritual, but they maybe reject church, Christianity, organized religion. And we're like, hey, well, that's good that you believe in God, but even the demons believe in God and shudder. Have any of you guys said that? But that's not what James actually says. He doesn't say you believe in God, dot, dot, dot. He says you believe that the Lord is one. So what's that all about? Well, in verse 19, James is referencing one of the most central prayers in Judaism then and today, which is this thing called the Shema. And the Shema can be found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 8. And it starts like this. It says, hear, O Lord, the Lord... Our God, the Lord is one. And then he continues. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Does that sound familiar? Then he continues. He says, these commands I give to you today will be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit up, when you are walking on the road, when uh, when you lie down, when you get up. Verse 8, tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads. Verse 9, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. See, this central prayer was something that was confessed daily, twice. Twice a day. In the morning, as you can see underlined right there, and when you lie down. And it's rooted in who God wanted his people to be and how they were meant to live how they were meant to think about God and understand that he alone is one and we love that one true God like this with everything we have. And we talk about it. We teach it to our children. In fact, Jesus, when he is tested, just right before he's entering Jerusalem or he might even be in Jerusalem at this point, but towards the end of his life, Some religious leaders come to him and they propose a question. They're trying to trap Jesus in his words. And they propose a question to him and they say, hey, you're wise, you're holy, we respect you, which was a lie. Tell us, what is the most important commandment in all of the law? If you had to pick one, what is it? 
Well, this was a trap because there were like hundreds. How do you prioritize that? But Jesus just like penetrates that right away. And again, he references the Shema, which is something the religious leaders taught and confessed daily, yet completely missed the opportunities daily. That's what's going on. And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. That is the way in which it is authenticated. It can't just be this vertical thing that we have, but then it plays out in your life. Perhaps the saddest part in this whole equation is that they knew this. And James addresses that. He says, you know well. You believe the Lord... Uh, you believe the Lord is one and you know well, meaning you confess it daily. You know this and yet you reject it. It's become religious rhetoric because you're not expressing it in your actions. You're not expressing it through your lives. And he gives them an example where they were once in that person's shoes and they're still rejecting it. And James says, man, even the demons understand that truth. And they shudder. So James continues. And he gives two Old Testament examples to drive his point home. He's going to talk about Abraham and Rahab. Verse 20 says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active alongside his works and faith was completed by his works or actions. And the scripture was fulfilled saying, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that, person is just, you see that a person is justified by works and not faith alone. Verse 25, in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by her works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? So, so James uses two examples, and he doesn't explain a whole lot because he's talking to Jewish Christians who knew these stories well. So he doesn't expound the fullness of, of, of Abraham or the fullness of Rahab's story. In fact, he just kind of quickly touches on something that they would have known, they would have heard, They'd have taught and learned growing up in Judaism. This was part of their heritage. And he talks about Abraham, which makes total sense because he's the pinnacle of faith for the Jews. He's, he's, he's their father of the Hebrew nation. He is the start of it all. He is the one who was called out of a, of a foreign land and told, grab your stuff, grab your family, grab everything you have and just go and I will show you a place. And Abraham was like, well, where? He's like, just go. And Abraham in the ancient world, which was very dangerous, begins to travel through lands he, he's, not, he's not frequent with. And he brings his family to this place. And in Genesis 15, God says, you see this land? I'm going to give this land to your descendants. And I'm going to bless you. And through you, I'm going to bless the world. And Abraham's, man, that's great. That's amazing. There's just one problem. I'm really old and I don't have any kids. And my wife is really old and she's barren. So how does this fit? And then God says, look at the stars. Look up. Do you see them? 
Can you count them? This will be like your descendants. This will be your legacy. This will be your people. And it says that Abraham believed in that promise and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now it was a belief. It was like a vertical thing at that point, right? And though he had, he had made significant effort to get to that place to receive that promise, he begins to then walk in that promise and he doesn't do a good job. We know the, the fullness of Abraham's story. He tries to play God at one point, right? Have a baby with another woman, just didn't work out. But then flash forward, we see this promise come. We see that Sarah is pregnant. We see that she has this baby and Isaac is born and he's this promised child. He's this miracle, right? He's the first Hebrew that will then kind of like, you know, bridge the gap of this Hebrew nation to become what God wants it to be. And that's like this crazy story where you see God do that. And then we get to a point in Genesis chapter 22 where God says, hey, you know that son I gave you? I want you to offer him to me as a burnt offering. I mean, that should hit you in a really weird way, right? And Abraham's like displaced. But knowing and trusting God, he begins to make steps towards walking in obedience for that. So we see that in, in Genesis 22, he starts preparing for the trip. God tells him a place that's three days away. He gathers his supplies. He gathers his servants. He gathers sacrifice um, materials, burnt offering materials. Um, and he begins to travel and he gets to this mountain and he tells his servants to wait there. And he says, we're going to go up and make a sacrifice and we'll be back, plural. And you, you see a, a glimpse of his faith there. And then along the, the walk up, Isaac, a very intuitive boy, very, very self-aware, he goes like, hey, we have the supplies for the offering. We have everything we need. We're going to the place, but we don't have the lamb, right? Scratching his head. And his dad says, don't worry, God will provide one. But here's, here's what I want you to see. Underlining all of this is the belief that God or that Abraham believes that God will not break his covenant that he made to him in Genesis 15, which is that quote that James quotes right there, that he believed God. Abraham is clinging to that because he knows that God is faithful. And it doesn't make sense that God would take his son when that was the promise of what God was trying to do with the world and through Israel. But here's the thing. Abraham might've thought that in the beginning and therefore he didn't just sit there and say like, yeah, right, God, you're, you're messing with me. I'm not going to waste a three-day walk just for you to not do that. Like, no, like this, this no, he, he's like actively walking. Though he knows this, he's still obeying God and doing what God is asking him to do. Until the ninth hour, when he gets his sword out or his, his, his knife and his son is tied down and he's like, God, are you going to stop this? What is going on? But again, he's not sitting there idle just saying God would never do that. That's not God's character, which it's not. We don't see human sacrifice, sacrifice ordained or, or commissioned by God anywhere in scripture, right? But, but he's still doing it. He's still walking towards what God is asking him to do. And then right before it's too late, God stops Abram, Abraham rather, and he stops him and tells him not to do it. He, he has an angel come and says, stop. And then they look over in the corner and there's a ram caught 
by its, by its horns and thistle. And there's the sacrifice that God provided. And you see this huge step of faith and you see this tension that we should feel that they would have known when he says the story. Like it's, it's this huge thing that, that, that just doesn't make sense to us and shouldn't make sense to us, yet Abraham was obedient and he moved forward step by step, obeying God along the way. And this is why Abraham is known as the father of faith. He believed God and that belief was revealed, was authenticated through his action, through his motion. And then James does something a little weird, is that he goes from like Abraham to Rahab. Now, now Abraham makes sense. Abraham is like, any of you guys collect cards, like, like Hall of Fame cards when you were a kid or something like that? Nobody? Really? Come on. Pokemon cards? Anyone? Okay. Yeah, thank you. Okay. Abraham is like that card that you seal in, in plastic, a thin layer of plastic, and then you seal again in like, you know, reinforced steel, you know? I don't know if that's a thing, but it's like, you know, and, and th- it, Abraham is that like, that card that trumps all cards. He's the ultimate example for the Hebrews, right? For these people. He's the father of faith. He's the, he's the one that God used to start all this, his covenant. And then like, you know, you have that nerdy kid that comes along and wants to like trade like a really dinky card, his Rahab for your Abraham. And you're like, yeah, right. No way. Right. It's not protected. It's all dinged up. That's sort of, that's sort of, not really, but sort of kind of what's going on here. Because James is doing something specific here. He, he refers to Rahab, who was a woman, a pagan and a prostitute in the scriptures. And out of all the people that, that Abraham could have used in the Old Testament as an example of faith, he chooses Rahab, but he does it on purpose because he wants to connect last week, which was his partiality soapbox, to his faith and works soapbox. He wants to show and authenticate that God used this woman prostitute pagan who even lied for his will. And in Joshua chapter 2, we know the story that, that, that the Hebrews have come to the promised land and they're about to enter it. And they send some spies to go and, and, and report back what's going on. What are the people like? And he sends two spies, Joshua sends two spies and they enter the region of Jericho. And this is a super hostile, dangerous land. They would have surely been killed had anyone caught them. And the king is, knows they're coming and is sending men to find them. So they take refuge in Rahab's house. They take up residence there for a short time. Now, just to kind of create the tension a little bit, um, Rahab is a prostitute who most likely would have uh, used her home to write off on her taxes as a home office, right? I mean, this is this is this is, there's some te- this is a messy situation that they are residing in the home of a woman pagan prostitute. And yet they take refuge there. They, st- they spend the night there. And then the king comes. He heard that they were by her house. And he says, where are those men that, 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 that came to your house? And she's, she has a choice to make at that point. Because depending on her answer and what happens was a life or death situation for her. And she says, I don't know. They were here for a short while, but they left. And I don't know which way they went, but I hope you catch them. All the while, they're in her roof hiding. 
And the king's men leave and the men come down and Rahab proceeds to tell these men that she has heard of Yahweh. She has heard of the wonders he has done. Now in the ancient world, stories like that we see in the Exodus would have spread like wildfire and they had a lot of time to spread like wildfire. You remember the 40 years of exile, (laughs) right? So these people in the land of Canaan had heard the stories of the God, Yahweh, who was the God of these slave people that brought the, the greatest kingdom in the world at that time, Egypt, to its knees. She heard the story of, of, of the people of Israel walking on dry land. And that struck fear in the land. And for her, she says, I believe this is the one true God. I believe what I've heard. And that is why I'm protecting you. Will you spare my family? And ultimately, her family is spared so much so that she becomes the great-great-grandma of King David, which then makes her in the lineage of Jesus, woman, pagan, prostitute. And James is saying, you don't get to pick and choose who your examples are. You don't get to be partial. This was dangerous for her. So in closing, our belief must translate into action. Faith, belief must translate into action. Even when it seems impossible or outright dangerous. This pattern we see in scripture, I'm not, I'm not trying to like, you know, PR my own agenda here. This pattern is in scripture. We see this demonstrated in the life of, 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 of our crucified savior, in that cross-shaped life he lived. We see it demonstrated in the disciples who become the apostles. We see it demonstrated in some of the first Christians that experienced persecution. That being people like Peter, who is beaten for confessing the name of Jesus in Jerusalem, and then he leaves rejoicing that he was counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. We see this in Stephen, who in Acts chapter 7 is is stoned, but won't relent, won't back down, won't stop preaching the message of the cross. We see it in Paul, who kind of lists all this stuff in 2 Corinthians and, and how sometimes he was beaten and left for dead outside of the city. We see it in James, who's writing this letter, who who embodies this lifestyle, but then also ultimately gets martyred because of his faith. What I want to do is is we have two ancient examples, and they're great. You can't beat them. They're they're amazing. And, and, And for the people reading this letter, they would have understood that. For us, we should understand that more. But what I want to do is is um, give you another example. I was fortunate enough to see this demonstrated by my own mom growing up, this type of faith. She doesn't know I'm doing this. She's sitting in the first row right here. (laughs) But here's the thing. It was a super common thing for me to come home and find a stranger in our house, typically wearing my clothes. Right? She would just like find people in need and, 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 and all she had was her home and she just brought them, brought them home. And I'll give you a little context for this specific story. Um, for about 10 years growing up, junior high and high school and a little bit in my 20s, we lived in a, a small house sandwiched between two churches. 
meaning like 30 feet this way there was a church, and then about 70 feet this way there was a church. Um, and I come home one day from school or work, I don't remember which it was, but I come home and to no surprise, there's someone, you know, I don't know, sitting on our couch in my hoodie, probably, right? And she's like laughing hysterical and my mom's right there and, and they're, they're acting like they grew up together, right? Like they were best friends. And my mom proceeds to tell me the story of this young lady. And she says that she was getting a ride from a guy she barely knew. It was a long, long drive. And he made an aggressive pass towards her. And when she didn't comply, he kicked her out of the car. And there was just one problem is that she found herself in a city she didn't know with people that she didn't know. This is pre-Google Maps, pre-Siri, pre-smartphones. I think it might've even been pre-everyone having a cell phone. And it's within the scope of our home and she's walking around this place and she sees a church. Well, they'll help me. It's a Friday afternoon. She, she walks to this church, interrupts what, whatever's going on in that church office. And to her surprise, they outsource her. There's nothing they can do. I'm sure they were sympathetic and be warm and well-fed, but pretty much sent her off on her way. So she's discouraged and then she walks past our house and then what the heck, there's another church. Well, what are the chances two churches are going to not help me? She gets to this church, and again, she's outsourced, sent off on her way. At this point, she begins crying, she's sobbing, and for whatever reason, she retracts a little bit, which gets her close to our house in the middle of both these churches. And she is crying, and I think she's sitting by our fence, just trying to figure out what is the next step. And my mom overhears this and just can't ignore it. And that's just who God's made her to be. She can't ignore it, and she invites this young woman in. She comforts her. She feeds her. She lets her shower. She gives her my hoodie. She lets her rest. I believe she spent the night, and then the next day, her and my, my dad drove her to wherever she came from, which was like somewhere outside L.A. Um, but here's the thing. I know if I was to ask my mom, and I know I asked her growing up, why do you do things like this? I know what she would say. She'd say, Mondo, it's because God did that for me. Paul in Galatians 5, 6 refers to this as faith expressing itself through love. So we can start justifying faith that produces actions as, whoa, 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 we can't earn that, we can't do that. But, but really the way we should see it is faith working itself through love. Our action is our love. The way that we do this vertical thing is through our love of our neighbor, as Jesus said. Jesus would refer to this as, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. They shall receive mercy, or be shown mercy. The question becomes is then, what about us? What about you? Have you forgotten the mercies of God that he has so graciously lavished on you? Do you, like me, sometimes suffer from spiritual amnesia? where we forget the goodness of God and what he's done and what he will do? Do we get apathetic? Do we get bored with our faith? 
Do we forget the royal law that James refers to in chapter two, earlier in chapter two, which is to love your neighbor as yourself, even in the midst of risk and danger? You see, if we're not careful, what we could do is we can easily take all of James's illustrations that he gave us and somehow reinterpret them and make them modern as though widows and orphans don't exist today. We can reinterpret them as though the needy, the poor, the thirsty, the hungry, the sick, the outcast, the imprisoned, the exploited, the oppressed, and the enslaved don't exist anymore. That we have to find modern ways of doing that stuff. And I'm not saying there aren't modern ways. Here's what I know, that these people didn't magically disappear 2,000 years ago. So the question then becomes, how do we leverage what we have? How do we leverage our faith on their behalf? How do you leverage who you are, your position, your status, your bank account, your resources, your personality, your struggles? What has God shown you and brought you through? Can you walk alongside others? And then there's a we aspect to this. Like, what about the church? How do we do this. And we talk about orphans and we think about the, um, the foster care system in Ventura County. There's some work to do there. Are we going to outsource that to someone else? I'm not saying everyone needs to leave and go get a kid right now, but will you consider it and think about it? Rather than turn this illustration into a way of just being nice to your coworker, that's important, by the way. Very important. But that is not the goal. We don't need to change what James, what Jesus says in his word. So how do we leverage this stuff? The reason we want to think through this is because James, again, will not let this go. And he says again in verse 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Jesus calls this dead faith salt that has lost its saltiness or its effectiveness. He also calls it light that hides under a bowl. If you noticed, I I titled the sermon, Real Faith, which is the name of this series, a study of fidelity, which might be a weird word for you. But here's the definition of fidelity. Faithfulness to a person, a cause, or belief demonstrated by the continued loyalty and partnership. Which means that we are faithful to our triune God. We are devoted to his cause. We translate our beliefs into doing his work, which is then demonstrated or authenticated by our works, our deeds, our actions. You see, in the Old Testament, God often describes the relationship between him and Israel as a marriage. It's a beautiful analogy. Jesus does the same thing with us in Ephesians chapter 5 with his church. But we see this marriage analogy, which is this beautiful picture of God being this good, faithful, loving husband that lavishes his wife with blessings. God being this faithful, good, loving God that lavishes his people with blessings. But so often in scriptures and so often in our own lives, we succumb 
to unfaithfulness over and over. And the Old Testament refers to this as infidelity. Meaning that, that, that they forgot, we forget our true love. Thus, we forget our identity. We forget our purpose. We forget our mission. We forget the Shema. Instead, we turn our face from the needy, from the widow, the orphan, the poor, the thirsty, the hungry, the sick, the outcast, the imprisoned, the exploited, the oppressed, the enslaved, and the foreigners. But God, being so good, still, so merciful and compassionate, always seeks to restore the unfaithful, always seeks to forgive and bring back into right standing. Over and over you see this happen with Israel. And I would say over and over you see it happen with the church. That he is good and like a faithful husband embracing his unfaithful wife, he restores us. He loves us that much. So the beauty of this, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of what James is trying to say is that God initiates this type of fidelity with us. He gives it as a gift. We can't do anything. That is a vertical reality. That he, he, he just does that. And that is not meant to just take and then sit and remain idle, but to do something with it. It's not about what we're saved from, it's about what we're saved for. It's important what we're saved from. But Christianity is not an escalator from earth to heaven where you just sit there, play on your phone. Eventually you'll reach the top gradually growing a long way. It's risky. It's sacrificial. And James ends, again, he won't let this go by saying, faith apart from works is dead. But the good news is that we serve a God who resurrects dead things. That's what Rahab knew. That's what Abraham knew. Hopefully that's what we know. But maybe we're, we're, we're remembering that again. And that's okay because that's our God. He's faithful to resurrect dead things, even dead faith. I mean, at one point, the Bible in Ephesians 2 says that we were once dead. That's how it's, it's, we're described spiritually dead. We were dead, wallowing in our own sins and transgressions, yet because he was rich in mercy... He saved us. But not just so we can sit there. He saved us for good works that he wants us to do in advance. Ephesians 2.10. Our God resurrects dead things. And then he imputes his spirit. He, he places his spirit, that resurrection power, in us. Not to sit there and be stagnant. It's not a bowl of water. It's not this, the tight lid on it that we just get to sip every now and then. It's a river. It flows through us. If the church doesn't get that, we're missing something. But not just the church, because 
when I say church, it's easy for you to go, yeah, the church, right? Those people, <laughs> right? Us, brick by brick, with Jesus as the cornerstone, we make the temple. We are his body. He is the head. We are his church. We can't outsource this stuff. This is for us to do. That resurrection power that lives within us is meant to penetrate not just your own life, but the life of others. The existence of, I mean, it's, it's meant to, I mean, it throws the world upside down. It really does. Now, this happened first service, but Jason, you want to come out? I was stalling. There he is. We're going to pray, and then we're going to sing. And, and, and I think, if I could claim in faith, I think there are probably people in here that are harboring dead faith. And, and maybe it's not dead, but maybe it's just stagnant. Maybe it's just sitting there. And if you're having a hard time coming to terms with that, just read the book of James this week and see what he says. The stuff he's using has not disappeared from our world. There are needy people in our city there are desperate people in our city. I'd say in our church that, that that's true. But it doesn't stop at the church. And then it doesn't stop at the city. And it then doesn't stop at the state and the, and the civic and all. It's like, it, this, is, this is the kingdom of God that transcends borders. That our brothers in Africa this morning, our brothers in the Middle East, our brothers in Canada, our brothers in Mexico, Hopefully they're all gathering right now and they're being encouraged because that's the church. And we take care of each other. But we also take care of others. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Let's pray. God, you are good. You are good first, Lord, because you are. And then second, because I believe that. But you don't need me to believe that for it to be true. Because you, you have displayed that in humanity for centuries, your goodness, Lord. You're so tender, yet you're so powerful. You are so mighty, yet approachable. God, your greatness is so vast, yet in humility, you gave us Jesus to dwell among us but not as a king that would be recognized, Lord, as a king that would be rejected and as a servant that would come underneath and ultimately die. That is the pattern you set over and over in scripture for us to follow. And sometimes we just shut the door, we draw the blinds down, and we just sit. But God, that is not what you want. So may we hear these words of James who won't let us escape the reality that true faith, faith centered in the gospel will result in good deeds, in righteousness. That the truth of you being one 
and us loving you with everything has to mean loving your neighbor as yourself. And that our neighbor is not just the person nice to us, Lord, but our neighbor is also our enemy. Father, would you, by your spirit, begin to penetrate and, and affirm that reality in our church? That as we read the rest of James for the remainder of this series, we would see it through a new lens and understand what we are to be, who we are to be, as individuals and together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.